Okay, so I pressed that before I pressed record, but anyway, I'll add that in later. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here with Tom. I'm going to say your last name wrong. Rash? Correct. Oh my God, I said it right. Uh, this is episode job, 98. We're almost at two. Uh, well, I almost said 200. 100 episodes, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. So tell people a little bit about who you are, and then we'll jump in at some things. Okay. Well, before I, before I do that, though, I wanted to uh, compliment you. The graphic that you said that was playing before you hit record. Yeah. Super cool. I really dig uh, that. Yeah, that was uh, Dylan. <laughs> yeah. Well, great job, Dylan, and, and yeah. Greg and Dylan, and everybody out there. Um, uh, yeah, for people that don't know me, um, Tom Rash, and by the way, once again, kudos on getting the last name right. Um, I uh, I have worked for Marvel years ago on the Punisher 2099. Um, I've also worked in the video game industry for years, working on titles for the PlayStation Network. Uh, I've worked on some film projects. And in the last 10 years, my main focus has been to um, really move forward as an independent comic creator and get characters off the ground um that have all been percolating in my brain for many many years some since i was in grade school and uh so that's really what my focus has been and so i've been very heavily uh heavily i, I guess present on the social media scene by connecting with fellow independent creators and, and also finding networking opportunities and um the, the first character that i created was a character called black alpha which i created as an 11 year old fifth grader um the pitch is, what if you took the Batman story, sprinkled in some Iron Man tech, and dropped it off in the middle of Star Wars? Uh, it was published in USA Today. Um, I've had merchandise from it on numerous episodes of The Big Bang Theory. Uh, it's been optioned three different times for TV cartoon and movie development. And then um, I've had other characters that have been born of, in my noggin since then. And uh, another character of mine called Salem Tusk, who I created as a sophomore in high school when I was 16, is now going to be made into a movie that uh, starts filming in the fall of 2022, uh, starring former WCW, WWE wrestler Bishop Stevens, and his Hollywood career has been taken off over, over the last several years, and he's been in, like, The Walking Dead and uh, Chicago PD and a number of movies and stuff. So him and I partnered up about three years ago, and um, he's uh, really spearheading getting this moving forward, and so that's very exciting to see. It's uh, going to be an independent, same kind of thing. It's an independent action movie, so... You know, it may not have the budget of, say, like the big ones from like Disney and Paramount, but it's, you know, it's going to be our film and and especially Bishops. And so that's going to be really fun to see. And then I, I also have um, several characters that I have out in the public eye that over the last few to several years have also gained interest from Hollywood. Um, I'm actually still in talks with those. I've been in talks with Netflix over the last month. And uh, the one thing for the people out there in the audience is anything that you see that becomes a movie television. We'll talk about comics in a moment here, but um, it literally sometimes can take years before they get off the ground. And and numerous also like, it's going to happen. It doesn't happen. It's going to happen. You know, there's a number of factors where it can fall apart. Um, the filmmakers, the producers lose funding. There's just so many things. And so I've had to kind of learn that the hard way. Um, so I'm always grateful that at least what I'm doing with my characters has has taken notice by something like Hollywood because it shows that hopefully my instincts are correct, that I feel like I create fun and commercially viable characters. And they're all born of honest nerd, pass, nerd passion because, um, you know, I, I was mentioning earlier to Greg that I've been a lifelong nerd since I was about five. Um, my mother's an awesome artist. And around that time when my dad, Bob, was stationed in um, Guam and my mom, Maggie, I would take her uh, drawings and start copying them. 
And then right at the exact same time, I was introduced to television and I used to watch Batman with Adam West, the old Spider-Man cartoon with the jazzy theme, um, and then Star Trek. And so I'd say those two moments in my life as a very young child fused together and really set me on the path that I'm literally living, um, you know, decades later. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, eventually, I say eventually, like years from now, um, we do want to create our own movies and shows and stuff. And I think I kind of want to have like some creative control over some of that. So I think mm -hmm. we would probably like be producers or something of the form on that just because I wrote a, I'm writing, I didn't finish it, I'm writing a novel <laughs> and it's a nonfiction thing. And it like takes place as like a key, we're at a keynote speech or whatever. Mm -hmm. And this one entrepreneur that we've like, uh, Gary V it's like his keynote thing that he like has as his own thing. And mm -hmm. uh, we are like there as like guests and we are actually talking about like how Sierra Nova became a thing. And this happens like in the book, it happens in like 2030 or 2040 or something. So maybe I'm predicting the future. And then we have like a whole like film production studio and all this stuff. And at the end of the book, I already know what happens at the end. Um, we're going to leave the keynote speech and we're going to go to our studio and like we're going to be recording a movie for the Seer Chronicles, which is our like main flagship title. So it's kind of cool. cool. Yeah, that's one thing, too, that I kind of had to deal with the reality of is that um, and I've had all these meetings for years about when somebody and, and I will say this, too, is something I mentioned to Greg also earlier was that any of these opportunities that I've had um, for Black Alpha in the multi-platform space of the potential of like movies, TV shows, et cetera, has been brought about because of the networking I've done on Facebook for the last decade. So that's really <laughs> one of the big positives. Um, but through those times when I've had people approach me and, and have, have had an option, you know, one of the discussions we have right out of the gate is that, you know, that unless you're the, you know, independently wealthy and you're going to be bringing all the financial resources to get it off the ground, that there's going to be some changes. Um, and, and I feel like I'm pretty organic and pliable that way that I always tell people, you know, would you would would you care if this character ended up becoming a female or would you care if this character changed ethnicity? And I've always been open to that because I'm sort of also up to the creative challenge of like iterations can be their own cool thing. And uh, I'm not stuck as a purist. And a lot of things were like, well, this person started out as exactly this ethnic background and, you know, male, male or female gender. I'm just like, if you give the character his essence and the tone kind of stays intact, that's all I'm really concerned with. And so, um, so yeah, that's something I've kind of been pretty, uh, what I feel pretty comfortable with. And if anyone does partner with me on a TV or film project, I feel like I'd be the ideal creator because I'm not so married to my own material, you know, as the source material to say, well, no, absolutely not. That wouldn't work. And, and I also feel like, you know, um, uh, you know, we talked about the comics things briefly earlier, and I will say this real quick before I forget, um, you know, black alpha, I sort of did the reverse engineering for years. Like, like I started a comic book, I got a self-published version of the comic printed a number of years ago. But I also created all this merchandise prototypes and, and this anything that had to do with marketing, because I figured, well, if a potential investor or studio sees how this can translate to T-shirts and coffee mugs and toys and et cetera, that uh, they'll see, you know, that, that they'll, that's where they're going to get the return on their investment. And eventually the comic book, when I get my deal, the comic book will get funded through that. Well, didn't quite work out that way. And so I've been very grateful because especially when it comes to Black Alpha and I'm grateful for the opportunities, but 
I've had an audience that has followed what I've been doing this journey and they, most people have stayed pretty, pretty loyal. And I appreciate that because if they checked out, I wouldn't blame them because for the longest time I've been selling concepts instead of content. And so roughly about a year and a half ago, I, I partnered up with Jack Egan and John Jones from WTF comic. And they actually approached me and said, we would like to work with you to help you get some of your IPs off the ground. And so uh, WTF comics was responsible for my first Kickstarter, which was successful in July. And so we're currently in production on issue two. We've almost got the backer awards mailed out. And I had to kind of swing back around to reminding myself that comics are still a very viable medium because I think you get seduced by the dark side of the force in entertainment, meaning you're, you're you know, when you think about somebody coming to you saying that there's going to be a TV show or movie, possibility, <laughs> it's hard not to kind of get caught up in the potential glamour of that. And I sort of had to, uh, through some harsh lessons, remind myself that um, getting the comic moving again and getting it out to an audience's hands, you know, I mean, that's a huge step in the right direction because you're finally getting content that they can decide whether or not they're going to be invested in the story and other mm -hmm. components. Now, with all that being said, I mean, we've had, you know, some pretty cool rewards that have been shipped to backers that I know in the near future will now be available in the merchandise section of the WT Comics website. So, you know, I'm still trying to be mindful of, you know, now that we've got a comic issue one in your hands and you want to, you know, we, like my daughter has a little, uh, a drink cozy, you know, for to put on her sippy, her sippy cup. And uh, she's getting a lot of good use out of that. But, you know, T-shirts and everything else that goes along with it. I still want to be mindful of trying to be sort of quasi entrepreneurial about, you know, um, at least for me, my own personal kind of philosophy and mission is you still want to figure out all these different ways to sort of bring revenue in for what you're doing, monetize it. And a lot of people may not realize this either, like Star Wars, you know, Star Wars created George Lucas as a huge uh, inspiration to me, has been for many, many years. And I, uh, another thing is the Batman 1989 movie with Michael Keaton. It was about really getting that marketing aspect out there. And I think that when you do that, it, it sort of almost like creates a whole what I call like uh, emotional investment immersion, which means that if you like a story, you don't just like the movie. You like a book, you like a video game, you like a board game, you know, because it's you get this tangible components of that world that you're so emotionally attached to. And I think it just kind of almost creates more of a solid bond with you being, you know, a fan or, or a loyal follower of all these stories out there. And so I still want to kind of do that more logically. I think where they're both in tandem equally instead of one being way ahead of the other. And uh, that's one thing I want to consider as I'm moving forward. But and all those being with that being said, all of those creations for me come about honestly, because as a young child growing up, you know, I didn't just want to see the Batman show. My, I had my mom buy me a Halloween costume and I had a little Batmobile I could push around. And same thing with Star Trek. I got the action figures when I was in early grade school and a model of the Enterprise. And that's something I've loved, all of that stuff growing up. And so I have the T-shirts and the, all the collectibles and everything that goes with the things I enjoy, have enjoyed my whole life. So why wouldn't I as a creator create something similar when it comes to my world? And I say this, a lot of people out there probably feel this way. You haven't lived until you actually see whatever's been living in your head and you can physically hold it. Not just, you know, a comic book, have wearing a T-shirt of, of your character, but also the toys and everything else. You know, I mean, I, the first time that I got uh, things created for black alpha, I had a 12 inch maquette that a friend of mine, Matt Taylor, who's worked for blizzard. He worked on overwatch. He made that for me. He did the original 3d model. We got 3d printed um, maquettes done of that. And all he wanted as a payment was a copy of his work. And so, and I ordered several of them. And then one, one of them ended up on the big bang theory in Roz's apartment. Um, but seeing that and seeing the ship for black alpha, the Aramis seven, 
I had to sit there and really spend a couple hours just holding those things in my hand. And it, it almost felt like a dream because you're like, wow, he's been up here this whole time. And now I can actually, you know, I can hold it in my hands. And so um, that kid in me will always be excited. You know, we, we have a model kit actually coming of the Irma 7 that should be available for purchase um, around May. And same thing, like I've been wanting that for years. Like I grew up loving Star Trek and Star Wars models. So to have a model of my ship for my story is such a, another dream come true. Uh, real quick, I do have to nerd out, speaking of spaceships. So um, the Aramis 7 is kind of what would be equal to the Millennium Falcon and the Enterprise to me. Like, uh, I've always said that the, uh, like Batman or anything, any universe where the vehicle is one of the main, you know, it's, it's the hot ride for the heroes, but it sort of becomes its own character and it's a base of operations, et cetera. So, you know, um, the Aramis 7 kind of looks more, a little more Star Trekian in its philosophy of design, but it has more the attitude of the Millennium Falcon. It's an older ship. It's not that big has two decks. And so I've spent a lot of time like doing deck plans and coming up with all these specs for how it's powered and the kind of weapons it has and the overall scale. I mean, once again, stuff I've loved my entire life. So I'm like, I'm going to apply that to my universe of stories, you know, and, and I, I guess the, the world building aspect for anyone out there in the audience, not familiar with that term either. Uh, you know, world building is when a creator pretty much has a story and everything underneath of the foundation kind of must all make sense. And, and at times that can be, a very large story that has like thousands of years worth of history. That's not even just about your main characters. It's about the cultures and, and you know, different cultures and history of that world. I mean, Tolkien did it with the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Uh, Star Trek has done it, Star Wars, all of them. They have a massive amount of world building and it sort of in a way becomes an investment that your audience won't be interested in what main character that they love. Um, obviously it'll be the entire universe. So that way, you can, uh, I guess, improve the chances of franchisability, meaning you can do spin-offs and other ancillary materials because you can take one character that exists in one corner of that universe and do a story about him or the people he associates with, et cetera. And so I've been very mindful that most of my IPs have at least a bit of that component. And last but not least, at least the several characters I have out in the public eye because I was against this idea at first, but I finally figured out a way. I'm sort of doing like a little chart uh an architecture story construction chart about how I'm going to make it a shared universe. Because initially from appearances, not a single one of these characters look like they'd have anything to do with the other, but I have figured out a way to sort of exist, even as an Easter egg that they all exist in the same shared universe. So that's kind of a new direction I'm going that I'm excited about. Anyway, sorry about the lengthy tangent. That's that, you know, five or 11 year old in me getting really excited. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Like that, that, one of the things I was like, there, there was like so many things that you're mentioning during that. I was like taking some notes. Um, but uh, like the universe building, Greg and I definitely understand. Like we go like super in depth and like for like some of the stuff that we have, we have ideas that won't see uh, or won't come to fruition for like 20 plus comics. And yet we're like putting Easter eggs in these first set of comics that you won't even know they're Easter eggs until like the 20th comic. So it's like one of those things where uh, we very much enjoy that world building because that's what I like. Like, you know, my brother, um, he, he plays the, those, the Arkham Asylum games, like the Batman Arkham games. And uh, I used to literally just watch him play because it was just fun. Like he would play it and like the Riddler things, like figuring out the clues, like those little side quests, like, that stuff's enjoyable for like real fans. So having that for, you know, your own world for your fans, like you, you had mentioned like, um, you know, you, cause this is stuff that you would like. It's kind of the idea 
uh, we've talked about this before. There's the concept of a thousand true fans by uh, the, I think he's like the founder of Wired, Kevin Kelly. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea is that if you find a thousand people who are true fans, meaning they'll buy anything you ever make ever, right? They'll buy toys, they'll buy shirts, they'll buy your comics, movies, they'll buy tickets to concerts. It doesn't matter. They'll buy anything you produce. Then it, with a thousand true fans, you can make a living off of being a creative, off of being an artist. And uh, all you'd have to do is sell a hundred dollars worth of product a year. And that's not a lot for a thousand people. And so like, that's kind of the idea is like, if you focus in on like really building out these worlds and creating incredible things like merchandise that's not just like you know it's, it's something like we joked about before like we, we've got our brand on merchandise right nice. but like but honestly some of the cooler stuff will be like the splash pages or the cover art um in fact uh one of the comics we were uh publishing is a uh was it an anthology and the the piece of uh or the story that greg told has like a you know psychopath turtle in it and there's a really cool panel in it and I'm like, damn, that would look cool on a T-shirt. So I took it, I threw it through our dropship company, uh, got a mock-up of it, and sent it out. And immediately, like, someone's like, wow, I want that shirt too. <laughs> like, you know, really, it is like trying to figure out what you would really want. Like, don't don't try to figure out how to monetize your world. Try to figure out how to create a world that you would want to buy because it's the world that you've bought from so many other people, like the Star Wars, or you know, like basically it's like the, those huge Marvel fans, the Star Wars fans, the Harry Potter fans, like all of those worlds where people like the if Universal can make a place like in their parks for you, like you're doing, like that's world building, and like that's such a cool idea. Yeah, and and the uh, you know the thing I've mentioned now for a few years too is that I uh, you know if somebody says that your work or something reminds me of this or that, I'm always flattered. I don't get offended because I'm like. That's good because it really shows, you know, your influencers are coming through. Plus, you know, my my thing is I don't really want to go full avant-garde, I guess. I mean, I, I like I said, I've liked very commercial things my entire life. And I feel like uh, there's a reason for that. And I have my own kind of little litany of, of theories about why something lands on the audience or why it doesn't. But it doesn't mean I'm 100% right. But, I, you know, I've always kind of been intrigued by that. And I also feel that... Um, with the work that I've created, like I said, I'm creating what I love. I'm creating my version of what I love. And so I say it's giving people, the audience, something familiar, but new. And I pretty much give it my fresh coat of paint. Um, like I said, I'm not reinventing the wheel. And I've seen a lot of things, you know, when we, uh, I talked, you know, I talked about image earlier too, that they've been a huge influence on me for the last 30 years. Like, you know, Rob Liefeld, I think would be a perfect example. Like uh, I really admire him as a creator and I know it's been fun for some people to really kind of turn him into a, a punchline for years. And I, I don't ever support that with him because I feel like Rob is a true fan of comics. He's a passionate fan, just like I was since he was a young child. And even his characters, you know, I think he sort of found that sweet spot. Like, you know, a character like Cable to me definitely has a little bit of the Terminator. Although, you know what I mean? He's got like the robot, the cyborg and the eye, you know, the red eye, but I'm saying he's found a way to kind of make that accessible to the fan that they're like, Oh, this is really cool. I mean, almost all of his characters, you know, you can sort of pinpoint a bit of an origin, you know, he's even said, you know, with, with Deadpool that he wanted it to be Spider-Man with guns, you know, and, um, <laughs> you know, so I'm like, so he's kind of honest in that regard, just like I am too, you know, and, and I, um, I know that like, that I've also, being a passionate fan, I've also learned to have a sense of humor about some things too. Like I, I've had tons of, you know, all this information being cataloged in my brain about Star Trek. All, you know, I know tons of stuff about the specs of Star Trek, um, and anything that I'm into, you know, I lo- know a lot of the historical details. 
But I also love to kind of tease about it too. You know what I mean? Because some people get so caught up in the minutia, they get angry. And that's why, like, for me personally, <clears throat> you know, I like the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. I don't, you know, I'm not a purist that can't uh, let it breathe and be its own thing and its own iteration. And at the end of the day, I'm just like, am I entertained by certain things? And I'm like, yes. And and I do enjoy, like, uh, you know, realizing that the things that I really enjoy, even a character like Superman or Batman, you know, we talked about the world building, that they've been able to take those kind of singular characters and kind of do the same thing. They've been able to build a world around them, you know what I mean, with spinoff characters. And, and, you know, you can do an entire series, obviously, about Gotham City without Batman even being in it. You know, I'm just saying, so they've kind of done the same thing. And I suppose, uh, you know, Marvel has kind of done this interesting approach over the last 13, 14 years since the first Iron Man movie came out. We talked about the Easter eggs. They've learned to really get the audience in there involved and, and really learn to unspool these slowly. The audience remembers, you know, when, when um, you know, spoilers for anybody out there in Endgame, you know, or whatever, which one it was, you know, when Captain America caught Melnir. Oh, yeah. Their minds. But I think that was, that's because, you know, there was that hint in one of the previous ones of Cap almost lifting up, you know, Thor's hammer. And, and there's these little emotional payoffs and even uh, another spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen the new Spider-Man movie. Spoiler, sorry, people, but Matt Murdock makes an appearance in that. And, and it was fun to hear the gasps in the audience that anyone that watched those Marvel shows on Netflix, that, that, that was, you know, that to them was a confirmation. Oh, this Matt Murdock exists in the same one as Tom Holland, you know, and, and the audience just really loves that because I feel like it really makes them feel like they're part of the club. And so I feel yes, like the, yeah. the world building mixed in with Easter eggs um, is important. And that's even our stories. That's kind of what we're trying to do is sort of plant those subtle Easter eggs so that, like you said, down the road, you know, if the audience is paying attention, they can say, oh, wait, whoa, 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 wait a second. I just noticed something here. And then, of course, you know, at times, even on the surface level of creation, I'll tell people my own little personal Easter eggs, even like in the first issue of Black Alpha, um, in the command deck of the ship, I actually have an orthographic or a schematic view of the ship to the right of the character, or I guess, no, to be to the left of the character in one scene. That's a callback to the Enterprise schematic being on the bridge as soon as you walk out of the turbo lift. Um, or the fact that the the story actually opens like Star Wars, it drops you off in the middle of the action. Uh, a small character, which would be the rebel blockade runners being pursued by these two huge menacing figures, um, that would be the Star Destroyer. And you're just, you're right in the middle of it. There's no big buildup. I even actually have an opening crawl in my Black Alpha comic books that is very much inspired by Star Wars to sort of give you a general, you know, up to speed overview of what you're about to step into. Um, but yeah, anyway, you know, I think Easter eggs have become very important. Uh, and, and the way you build those, because like, you know, you want to keep your audience interested. And, um, and, I, and I haven't watched everything out there that's really got a rabbit falling. Like I've seen all the Harry Potter movies. I've never read the books. Uh, same thing with, uh, you know, Tolkien and, you know, his his uh, Middle Earth world. Uh, you know, the stuff, like I said, mine is more sci-fi based than a superhero. But uh, even The Walking Dead, which I've never seen, you know, I'm like, I'm sure for the fans in there, there's got to be a number of these things that have really linked, I guess, the loyalty for the fans to stand. And now, you know, the way that the uh, spinoff shows have done well. What is it? Fear the Walking Dead. And I think there's a new one coming out called Tales of the Walking Dead. Um you know, and it's been interesting to even watch the trajectory of that one based on an indie comic. That was something we were talking about earlier, too, is that, you know, for the longest time, the, the big household names like the Spider-Mans and the Batmans and Superman for literally for decades have had kind of a foothold in the market. And so the the movie uh, companies want to work with them because they know generally everyone's heard of them. But it's been nice to know that there's been some uh, interesting, I guess, opportunities for indie creators to get their work out there, you know. So and who would have thought that anything about zombies 
ever, you know, like Night of the Living Dead pre-Walking Dead would become this huge phenomenon that that's a, a very viable genre now that, you know, the majority of the audience really loves. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was just thinking about that. My brother has a mug um, that says, like, if Daryl dies, we riot with like the uh, like a crossbow as the handle. Like, that, <laughs> I was just thinking about that, like the the idea. I think something you said earlier um, about the fact that you're, you're trying to make it like franchisable in the sense like, you know, you have all of this stuff built out. And it's interesting because um, I brought this up before, but, uh, you know, when it, when it comes to like building a business in general, not just like a creative business, one of the best ways to make a successful business is to build it as if you want to create a franchise and, and open more than just one. And it's interesting that even in the creative world, like you mentioned, like building it out so that it's this franchise and there's more than just this one story is the best way to make it succeed in the creative world, too. So it's a it's a very cool uh dichotomy there well hopefully hopefully there's longevity <laughs> with that approach and, and that's why i said i i respect other creators and if a creator wants to do a very indie slice of life story that's a one-off you know what i mean there's quality in that kind of work and that's why like i, I was just tell people create honestly be honest with yourself through expression and you know no approach really is wrong in my opinion but i know for me that's that's you know i mean i've even joked around that um you know i was a shy art nerd for many years and i spent a lot of time by myself, even in school. And I remember being like in sixth grade and I was always envisioning a black alpha TV show and a cartoon and toys and even doing interviews someday and, and imagining what that would be like. So, so even that part of my life has come true, you know, and that's been pretty fun and interesting to see. But even then I was always like, I had a drawing of the ship that I was doing and, and I had all these, uh, the villain characters that I was doing sketches of. And uh, that even I think I didn't realize it as a, as a kid, but that I think that's what was even going on then for me is that I'm like, how can I make this bigger? How can I make it bigger than just one story? You know, because uh, I've said it repeatedly, like me being such a huge Star Trek fan my whole life. Um, and Star Wars kind of took this approach in the original film too that there were mentions of things that the characters, the dialogue, the characters would say. Like I knew there were at least 11 other ships like the Enterprise out there and that that class of ships in the fleet they were mentioned in episodes and a couple of them, they were finally a couple of them were seen, but I didn't need to see them all the time. I just love filling in the blanks in the theater of my mind that I'm like, Oh, there's these other ships out there. I wonder what their other crews are like or what their captain is like. And, and when, uh, you know, star Wars first came out and Obi-Wan Kenobi's talking about the history of the clone wars and the Jedi Knights. I mean, right away I was excited. Like my brain was trying to sort of fill in this potential uh, several ways that this could go. And so I think that was just my appreciation as a fan and a future creator that I'm like, that's the stuff that really gets me jazzed, obviously, is so many different directions you can go to me, in my opinion, you know, when you do that stuff. In fact, uh, you know, one, uh, I'm a sucker, by the way, for tragic romance stories. I'm a, I, I'm a, uh, I don't apologize. I love Titanic. It's one of my favorite movies, anything <laughs> like that. And so I actually have a story set within the Black Alpha universe that I'd like to do as like a short form prose novel with spot illustrations that would actually be um, tied to the universe, but is not directly related to any of the main characters that you see currently. And it's a tragic love story. And you end up, you have to read the end of the book to find out between this young couple who ends up surviving, I guess. Yeah. If there's um, enough room the on the door or not. Yeah. You know, I just, yeah, just basically. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but, but also, you know, that's a, an example of like stories I would, hopefully I would like to do someday. And then even the mechanics of like, you know, honoring the the, uh, the people who love games and playing games, video games and role-playing games, et cetera, that the universe is also sort of right there, you know what I mean, for for the engineering of creating a whole other. In fact, we were uh, a friend of mine, Roger, we're going to do a Black Alpha 
game. We've been talking about it for almost a decade, and it actually would tie into the main story of where the comic book starts at. But the characters are not in the main story at all. But the, but the events in the comic are mentioned to these characters in the board game version, and they have their own mission, their own storyline. And I'm hoping him and I can still do that someday. But you know that even that, I ended up having so much fun creating another ship with a small crew. And so I would have to say if, if the initial Black Alpha story is more of a Batman, Star Wars, this this board game would be more of the Star Trek influence for me. You know, they've got color-coded uniforms and it's a small crew with different races and different, you know, types of species, blah, 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 with a mission on their ship. Um, that, you know, I just, like I said, I just get I just get so jazzed about that stuff because the kid in me is recognizing like I'm, you know, I'm creating my own Star Wars and Star Trek and I can't imagine uh, me being in another place in my life where I didn't have that as a part of me. Yeah, now, I think one of the cool things you mentioned too, like how you have um, like, like the Star or was it the Star Trek fleet or was it the Star Wars fleet where there's like multiple ships but you haven't seen a bunch of them but you know they're in the lore, and um, <clears throat> the fact that you uh, had the schematics for your ship like that's something that we like we definitely go way over the top for ourselves sometimes like uh, we have uh, w- one of our stories called Ink we finished writing the second issue but uh, we haven't started creating it yet and one of the things that we did was when we were trying to figure out a certain scene i'm like like what's what is this area he's like it's a warehouse like no like let's try to make a specific one so like we found one in like the city that our city's kind of based on and i literally like opened google maps like dimensioned it out built a 3d model of this entire building uh laid out a bunch of stuff and then i'm like all right now that it's an empty warehouse let's pretend this is an office so we built buildings and then i'm like well they're gonna need bathrooms so like i went like wait i, I went in i'm like well there's okay the facility is this much they probably have this many people they probably need this many toilets like it was ridiculous like just diving down the rabbit hole of like laying out a building yeah, it took like weeks. Yeah, and it's like the end of the next. It's it's only going to be maybe like six pages of the comic that is go around this, and then we might not go back to that warehouse for a while. And it's just kind of funny that we, we spent all this time building this building, and then we kind of uh, mapped out because like I, I I built it in this um, this thing called Floor Planner or Floor Plan Creator dot net. Um, it's five bucks a year. I highly recommend yeah, it. Yeah, just renewed, actually. So. Uh, oh, oh, almost broke the bank. Uh, yeah, it's incredible. Five bucks a year, you can create like 20 different um, schematics. And yeah, basically, we laid out the whole area. So when our artists go to draw this, we can actually move throughout it and go, this is the panel shot we want, right? This is the view. There's trucks. Because like we were thinking about, like he's sneaking around the warehouse, but there's going to be guards. How is he going to hide? Oh yeah, there's parking right here. We can put a bunch of trucks, and he's sneaking behind the trucks, right? And like just little details like that. Um, like, where's he gonna come from? He's just gonna walk from the street. Oh no, there's a creek right there. Like, there's gonna be trees and bushes, so he can hide there. And when one of the people comes by, he can grab him, right? And so like it, it, just little details like that. I, I love that stuff. And it's, uh, it's the creative engineering mindset, I guess, is what I call. It. And it's important, honestly, because you're sort of reflecting real culture, right? I mean. Engineering has to be thought out on all these levels, you know, architecture, everything, and it has to make sense. And so why not apply it? When you brought up the bathroom thing, by the way, that's one question I always get when I share the schematics of the ship. Everybody wants to know where the head is at. And I'm always jokingly saying it's in the basement of the ship. And (laughs) it's not included in my schematics because uh, I guess, I mean, I probably should, but I've never been concerned about that. Like, I didn't want to know where the toilets were at on the Enterprise. Uh, I know that if you do a schematic of the Millennium Falcon, I guess they have like a little 
bathroom and somebody made a joke. I bet you when Chewy uses it, it gets real furry on there. Um, <laughs> that was hilarious. But uh, I do laugh that that's always brought up every time that I share a schematic. And it, it does. It just tickles me because I, I guess that's that. You know, I mean, it would make sense from a world builder point of view. Your humanoids have to relieve themselves. And I suppose they need to have an area. So I probably should find a little corner somewhere in my ship, one of the rooms of the ship to have that in. But I do laugh that that always comes up. But uh, yeah, I mean, everything else. But, you know, you're preaching to the choir here because I do think it's very important. And um, even like when I brought up like the the scale of the Aramis 7, uh, besides wanting it to be more smaller and more maneuverable like the Millennium Falcon, I actually had to do some world building. Like, why did I choose that scale for the ship? You know what I mean? And the idea is, by the way, real quick, you know, the uh, Star Wars-esque aspect of the Black Alpha story is that there's these, uh, you know, kind of Green Lanterns, uh, the Lensmen. I don't know if anybody's familiar with the Lensmen. They kind of started the whole idea of the Galactic Patrol space cops from the 1930s, I believe it was. Um, and and the things that that they all share in common, like the Jedi Knights and the, the Green Lanterns, is that they have some sort of a power talisman. I guess uh, the Jedi Knights would be the lightsaber in the Force. The Green Lanterns are the, the power rings. The Lensmen actually have these lens that were in the palm of their hands that gave them extra abilities. In my Black Alpha story, they're called a cell suit. They're an augmenting suit. Uh, you know, a living armor kind of thing. And uh, that's that's where there's a commonality. And in my story, the uh, the guardsmen factions, there's 12 different star systems that I call the provinces. And these guardsmen factions are being destroyed one by one by a mysterious threat. And so the remaining guardsmen factions have been told to basically serve the more wealthy core systems or the provinces. And my character story starts out on one of the more poverty stricken, you know, systems and, and the ship that he ends up appropriating, you know, you'll read the comic and find out how he gets this uh, cell suit and the ship from a fallen guardsman um, is that this, this ship was an older one, uh, kind of like the Millennium Falcon is supposed to be kind of a, an old piece of junk. That's really fast. But I also decided too, that there was a time in the guardsman history that they used to go on very deep space patrol. And a lot of times their ships kind of became like their own apartments in space. I mean, it's, it's got like a science lab and a galley and a cabin and a guest cabin in case they come across a small vessel that's been, you know, stranded or broken down. And um, and it's like, I always say the ship is the Batmobile and the Batcave combined because it's uh, his fast ride, but it's also his base of operations like the Batcave. And that's an example of the world building. Like, I'm like, well, you know, at one time the guardsman probably traveled in at least four of them, you know, and the guardsman who had it was much older himself. And so the, this newer ranks of guardsmen that remain, they probably have more along the lines of like a fighter craft size, you know, because each one of them serve. They don't have to go as far out into space to serve, I guess, what they're doing since they're serving the royal governors, et cetera. And so that's another example of like why I made the ship the size that it did, because it really has to make sense within the scale of the, the story, you know. And I'm like, I wouldn't have a large ship that requires like a crew of 50 people because that's that that's not this particular kind of story I'm telling. And so that's another example of why I chose that scale for the ship. And then, of course, you know, the, the kid in my head, you know, or the kid. Yeah, the little kid in me is like running around trying to plan everything out and figures what it needs. But I can already mentally run around in it. You know what I mean? About about where things are going to be at. And what. Now, there are some things a couple of times that I've looked at it going, well, I may end up having to change some things because I ended up making what would be the cockpit area a little too large, I think, for the space it occupies. But I think I was. Uh, <laughs> Um, subconsciously influenced by the big sphere room that Professor X has when he uses Cerebro in the X-Men. And I sort of decided that the pilot of the ship, even with a small crew, he sort of tied into like the, the computer AI of the ship. And he sort of seems at the time, I thought he needed to have this like wide space to sort of get all this UI display in front of him 
you know, and I may end up changing that because I'm like, well, that does seem kind of silly. It does seem like a waste of space. So I may end up doing a redesign a little bit on the interior that will address that issue. But for now, it's probably larger than it needs to be. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I have a, like the medical and the science bay are kind of combined and there's a couple of, you know, beds there for people who've been injured, et cetera. But um, it's just been fun to kind of take all those aspects of like if you had a, a craft or a military craft or a space police craft, what's the purpose of it, you know, kind of stuff. So, um, but anyway, yeah, you know, so getting back on track, uh, the, the funny thing is like when I talk about the guardsman and my black alpha story, people ask if I was influenced by Green Lantern. I said, well, no, actually, no, not at all. Because the version of Green Lantern I grew up with was on the Super Friends. And he was one guy flying around with the ring that he could turn into a big baseball bat. I wasn't familiar with the Green Lantern Corps. However, I was really into the man called Nova. And I probably was more influenced by the Nova Corps than the Green Lantern Corps. But it really was just the idea of like uh, trying to create a reality for my lead character to exist in where what if you could become a real life superhero and you wanted to be that since you were a child. And there's this organization kind of like uh, the Musketeers, which is another favorite story of mine, an honor guard for a king or monarch. And uh, a popper like D'Artagnan, you know, really wants to be part of this. And, you know, there's all these things that he's facing against. And that's that's a reflection on some of my characters origin. And I decided I'm like, what can I create where somebody can become a real life superhero, but not like the traditional, like there's an accident or they're mutant. And I've been a big fan of the gadgeteer heroes anyway, like Iron Man and Batman. So I'm like, he would actually probably have to be able to to come about this by having something, whether or not it's a suit, you know, and uh, and, and the Batman aspect. Um, well, the one one difference, too, between the Green Lanterns is that, you know, there's still all these Green Lanterns that patrol all these numerous sectors of space. And my story the guardsmen are almost wiped out, kind of like pre-Jedi Knights before they got wiped out. So the guardsmen are almost wiped out and it sort of creates kind of this own sort of Gotham City and space in the system. Like lawlessness has completely sprung up, um, you know, corruption, chaos. And so that sort of helps my character in a way sort of thrive, I think, where he's needed. Because, uh, you know, the the arc that I've described to people is um, what I hopefully makes him unique is that he's wanted to be one of these guardsmen since he was roughly about my age, you know, five, you know, remembering what it was like to have a direction in your life. And he goes about it in a way that he didn't anticipate because I do follow the superhero mythology where his family's been destroyed or murdered and he kind of loses his way for a while. And he ends up in a way sort of getting back in that path of becoming a hero, uh, not in the way that he anticipated. And that's really, and I also want to do more of a character, character driven story where, you know, like I tell people um, he's got a suit that gives him augmented abilities, but he has to train rigorously to get it to operate effectively and he's not a millionaire. He's not a billionaire or billionaire like, uh, you know, Bruce or Tony Stark. Um, and he's got the Peter Parker aspect because, you know, he grew up on the, kind of the wrong side of the tracks. And I, I want him to be kind of like your next door neighbor that he's relatable. And, you know, if you ended up having some really difficult circumstances and some tragic things happen, um, how would you really, you know, how would you deal with those things? And that's really what I want, hopefully, the audience to experience is like if I was in this guy's shoes, really any of the characters in the story and look at their motivations and if they could find them relatable and stuff, you know? So I will say this, that even though it's uh, under the guise of space opera and kind of bombastic operatics, you know, superhero style battles and space battles, really at the end of the day, it's a story about humanity a story about us. Yeah. There's a lot of information I know spooling out of me. There. Have you ever, have you ever seen uh, my hero academia? I have not. It's it's an anime. It's probably one of my favorite animes, and the only reason I can't say it's my favorite is just because I was Dragon Ball Z first. But the um, <clears throat> basically, there's a character in there. Um, in, in this universe, everyone 
uh, I think it's something like 80% of kids are born. Uh, and when they hit a certain age, they, they're like spark, I think it's called is activated and they get some random power and it could be something like internalized where they can like, you know, shoot out energy or it could be like they can shape shift or maybe they literally turn into a monster like looking person. Um, it's just something that gives them a power. They all get, they all get names and they typically go to school and learn how to, uh, apply it. And one kid, all of his friends are getting their sparks activated, but he doesn't. And it never happens. It turns out he is actually, or quark, that's what they're called. They're, they're quarks and he is quarkless, right? And it turns out that um, in, this, in this universe, there is a great threat. Uh, coincidentally, you mentioned the musketeers. One of them is called um, All for One. And he is this great, uh, great threat. He has this power where he can take other people's quirks and then they become quirkless and he can use them. Mm-hmm. And then there is a counter to this called um, one for all. Right. Uh, and so I, I'm pretty sure it's that. I don't remember which way it is, but one of this is the counter. And this person is basically they're just filled with energy and um, can redirect it into like a punch, a kick or whatever it is. But they can do extremely powerful things. And the one unique thing about this quirk is the only quirk that you can actually give it to someone else. And when you do, all the power that you earned with it goes with it, which means every time it's passed on, it gets stronger and stronger. And the, the character who starts in the show, who is quirkless, uh, he actually runs in to try to save someone, even though he has no superpowers, when there was other superheroes standing by who were scared. And so this little kid runs in to try to save his friend, and um, the main the main superhero at the time sees this, and later uh, he admits that he's been dying, and he's giving him his quirk, and so he gets to be a hero too. It's like such an emotional story. It's such a great story for it's, a freaking it sounds, anime. It sounds super cool, and that's one thing I will say on a side note, by the way, that one of the times that Black Alpha was option, that was something that was being discussed. Would you be opposed to seeing this as an anime? Oh, it's it's like honestly, like the thing with animes is that they're they're so good at. Uh, like the couple of things that they do really well compared to like cartoons. First off, if they're older animes, their background design is phenomenal and their storytelling is incredible and their musical choice is incredible. Like, you know, the old Cowboy Bebops, uh, you know, obviously even stuff like the Dragon Ball Z that's become so iconic. There's floats at the Macy's Day Parade, right? So it's like there's things like that that have become so uh you know memorable and powerful on culture and so it anime is isn't a bad way to go if you get the right artists you get the right um like music supervisors for selecting musical composition you get the right you know storytellers it's a really awesome medium well i was going to say i don't believe dylan you and i are friends on facebook's but we'll probably have to friend each other because i actually (laughs) have i actually have anime style versions of black alpha that i've designed Oh, that's I, actually very have, cool. I actually have an anime style action figure variant. Um, that's awesome. When, when you brought that up, yeah, I wasn't against the idea at all because that actually very much excited me and something I'm still actually very open to. Uh, and even the mythology of my story kind of lends itself a little bit because I know when somebody was asking me about some of the concepts of Black Alpha years ago, <clears throat> the guardsmen and the fact that they, uh, the suit, the, the cell suits, which CEL is a, an acronym, acronym for Cyber Enhanced Link, um, they, they call themselves pilots the guardsmen do like they pilot their cell suit. And so it's got, somebody said, Oh, it sounds a little bit like Gundam. I think Gundam, yeah. <laughs> or a little bit of neon, neon Genesis Evangelion or whatever it's called. So mm-hmm. there's some of the mythology that's, uh, that's also kind of, I could see sort of kind of cross over there, but also even when you talked about the, the, my hero academia thing, like the, uh, the, the uh, science, I guess that behind the cell suits is that 
there, there's an exo energy field that the pilot has. So it's, it's a biomechanical armor, but the, the bio part is that it's bonded with the DNA of the pilot. And so it's a reflection of his physiology. And so that's why the, the, the guardsmen have to train vigorously because they have to be at their top. That, see, that's, that's really cool. Cause like, that's, that's actually what happens to that person, that kid who gets this quirk. The, the quirk is so powerful that he starts breaking his own bones when he punches things. And so it turns out he has to build up his, uh, his, his own strength because uh, – so, so he ends up going to this top-tier school for, like, uh, students to become superheroes. And essentially what happens is he, he can beat anyone. But the problem is to do so, he, he basically is doing full power with his quirk. And he just flicks his finger and he can destroy a building, but he'll, his finger will be completely shattered. And in the school, they have a nurse who can heal you. But the problem is that only can work so many times uh, in, a, in a short time period. Like if you keep destroying yourself every week, you know, she can only like heal you so many times before it may, might become permanent. And so he has to do a ton of training so that this, this power he was given can be used and not kill him because it'll literally kill him if he can't control it. So that's a really cool thing. And I, and I don't remember which Gundam, but I think there was a Gundam uh, – that had that idea because uh, well, there's like, I don't know, six different variations of the show. Uh, I believe there was a Gundam that actually had it where there's a huge connection between the pilot. There's, there's always a connection between the pilot and the armor. But um, I believe one of them, like it, you got more of you were better. Like, you know, if you were stronger, not just mentally, but like uh, physically. Yeah. And, and the idea, the philosophy behind it. Um, well, real quick, I'll finish up what I was saying that. So, the, like the, um, it's almost like what I would say the Marines combined with the Shaolin monks a little bit um, that that the idea is to sort of bring in like someone of noble spirit that if you're going to be one of these guardsmen and you want to protect people, you don't want to abuse the power. And so they didn't just have it be a simple like, you know, you put the armor on and it works like the, the flick of a switch. And the notion being too like um, because of the cell suit energy, like like, you know, and I also sort of break down the, the iconography of the superhero powers like. With a cell suit, if you run, you can run, you know, faster. You can leap at least 20 or 30 feet in the air. Um, you know, the the mechanical part is there's, you know, they've got these helmets that are like Iron Man's. You know, there's like orthographic vision, you know, displays, you know, a perimeter readout. Um, and like I said, it's bonded to each uh, individual guardsman. And once they are deceased, then their suit will work for somebody else. But they won't work for anybody else. And that idea I took a little bit from the... Uh, the lawgiver from Judge Dredd, where their 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 guns are are tied to their DNA and they won't work for somebody else. So I kind of borrowed that idea a little bit, and then um, you know, and and the idea. Oh, the other thing too is that because uh, I wanted to address the issue of superheroes that can fly, like Superman. Well, in my story, the uh, and and the people there, the the Caradian star systems, the provinces, they're our Terran cousins, or that's what they refer to us. So they're humanoid characters. They're very well aware of Earth. Um, a couple of them may have even spent time here at some time, but in their world, you know, I decided like, what if everyday aliens were a way of life that also had uh, superhuman abilities? How would our humanoid cousins level the playing field? And that's where the Scarsman program came from, is that in order to protect your, your province and, and the, the people of the realm, you know, you have to kind of create these sort of uh, superheroes that are, you know, partially, like I said, have to train vigorously. That's a bit of the Batman aspect. But also, you know, it's the only way that they can do to survive is to have these guardsmen ranks. But um, so in other words, like uh, they don't fly because we can't fly. So they have uh, the, the shoulder pad areas and armor that I call memory armor, like Batman's memory cloth. And if they repel out of a ship, they can glide to the ground. It gives the illusion of flying. But they don't do anything that we can't do. You know what I mean? So like 
I'll, and I didn't want to, I didn't want their superpowers to be so intense that they're, they're omnipotent. You know what I mean? So I would have to say that the strength level is more along the lines of say like Spider-Man, maybe a little bit less, like they're not going to be lifting up ocean liners or anything like Superman. I mean, you know, they, and, and they struggle too. Like if they have to lift up, say like if there's a crash, like a little shuttle ship and they have to lift it up, I mean, there's still going to be a bit of effort to lift that off. It's not, they can just like, you know, flip it off with like an index finger. <laughs> So, you know, you want to give the, the character something to go up against. But, yeah, I mean, and I, I've even have a couple of villain characters down the road. Uh, one of them actually also has a cell suit that he's taken from a fallen guardsman. Doesn't go the right path. And the other thing the cell suit can do is because of the energy, like whatever is within the range of that cell suit, like you could have like a cinder block on a chain, even throwing like shrapnel. And it'll have it'll still be energized by the cell suit. So it'll have much more power to it. So you take, can take kind of like gambit style, like just adding exactly kinetic, kinetic yeah. energy. Yeah. And you can take that and turn that into a weapon and stuff. Very and good. then, um, and then one of the notions that I haven't finalized on this is that, and this would probably drain Oh, real quick. So if the pilots get tired, the suit also gets tired. That's why they have to be at the utmost physical peak condition. And I played around with the idea that, that sometimes they can do things in extreme circumstances. And one of them is to create like a construct, which probably wouldn't be much different than um, like the rings. But it's not something they use very often because it depletes the suit almost instantly. So it's not like if they wanted to make like something in the shape of like a sword or whatever, you know what I mean, as a construct, they can do that. But I still haven't settled on that yet because I don't want to venture too close to like the lightsaber or, you know, the power rings. And so I figure, well, maybe I'll just keep it close to home where the suit is an augmenting suit. Like I said, it's an extra energy field that, you know, gives them their extra abilities and then being able to at least launch projectiles, like you said, gambit style. Um, yeah. And those things have been fun to think about, too. And, and that goes back to like, you know, when somebody brings up, it kind of reminds me of this or that. I kind of feel like well, we're all along the same instincts. And that's really exciting because the thing that I think most creators uh, are aware and maybe there's a couple that aren't. Almost everything that has been created has been done before. And this is just our version of that, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I will say this. I, I won't make this tangent too long. When I was originally coming up with the direction I wanted to go for Black Alpha, Initially, I was going to do an almost outer space retelling of the story of Moses, where this young noble heir finds out that his adopted family has been secretly subjugating the people of the 12 systems. And then he ends up taking one of the cell suits and deciding to kind of lead the people free. And when I used to tell people that, they go, oh, it kind of sounds like Dune. So then I was like, eh. <laughs> so then I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't go that direction. And that kind of, I decided to set it within the same universe, but instead of having being the son of a noble, I decided to have him, like I said, a popper. So I put him on the other end of, of the corner of the spectrum of what the, you know, the storytelling dynamics are. And I'm like, and besides that, I mean, it might've been compelling to do a noble who renounces his birthright to defeat like his secretly evil family or parents could have been cool. I may use that for something else someday, but I decided I would probably relate more to this character who grew up in poverty, you know, and, and wants to be this thing since he was a kid. Those are things I can easily relate to. Cause I always tell people and I was dead serious when I was in first grade and the teachers would ask, what do you want to be when you get older? And people, you know, kids would say fireman, police officer. And I would always raise my hand and say starship captain. I was. That <laughs> That's was, awesome. It was no joke to me because I'm like, well, by the time I grow up, there's going to be a bunch of big starships. So I sort of applied that to my lead character, too, you know, to say, you know, what if he lived in a world where it was almost within reach? You could, you know, become one of these almost folk hero type honor guard that you hear about, you know. And then, like I said, it's an interesting to me, sort of beginning path for someone who has innocence before he has his tra tragedy, like a lot of superhero type stories have, and then where he goes from there and kind of how he uses it. Uh, I would say he, it's kind of an anti-hero to hero arc for his own personal journey. That's cool. I like that. I uh, 
wrote a story called Mittens, the Space Pilot. Like, it's my girlfriend's childhood cat, and she, like, always said when the cat was, like, alive that it hung around with, like, a bunch of neighborhood cats, like, more than four, like, like mm -hmm. a, a giant group, like a mafia of cats. And so he works. So the comic book character works for, like, the mafia of, like, space. <laughs> and he does things for them. <clears throat> and uh, the first issue is actually going on Kickstarter uh, this summer. Oh, cool. And I got so excited to write it. I wrote all three of it, all three, like, stories of the first plot arc. And then I kept writing because the artist is like, I really like this. And uh, when you were saying, like, things are have already been a thing before, it's just, like, your own version. Um, I didn't even ask, like, what he thought about it. I was just like, oh, like, just read it and see, like, if you like it. If, if you don't, then you, I won't create the thing with you. And he's like, okay, so this is, like, The Mandalorian. And I was like, what? <laughs> he's like, yeah, it's like The Mandalorian, but a cat is, like, a space pilot. And he's got this like witty like humor and stuff. I was like, okay, this is like awesome. That's like the best compliment I ever got. For yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're being compared to the Mandalor Mandalorian, yeah. that's never a bad thing. It's like a yeah. western in sci-fi, but it's like all animal type aliens, and I can't wait uh, to get to the one planet because it's like cyberpunky. So yeah, I was gonna say earlier when you mentioned like the connection to like the Moses story, I feel like. When, when someone says, like, th there's no new idea, like, literally, like, the Bible probably has every type of story arc you could possibly imagine written in it in some fashion. And most, like, even, like, the Luke Skywalker and that the whole Star Wars, there's tons of, like, uh, you know, uh, resemblance from, like, stories in the Bible. Like, because it's impossible. Like, these stories are as old as stories are. Like, you know, it's like a, was a song as old as rhyme, right? The It's just, it's, it's just kind of... Yeah, you can't make something new. You can only make it look new. And and honestly, when it comes to selling something, you mentioned it all, like in the beginning of this, uh, the idea of familiarity and yet novelty. And that's how you have to market things as well. So it's not even just the creation of something. If you want to have it so that people are genuinely interested in it, they have to recognize something in it, right? They have to see something they've already seen before so that they can go, oh, I kind of get where this might be going. And then they can fall into that world. And really try to start to figure out what what's different about your world and I, I love that idea well yeah i think that's the best way to put it and and just to kind of go off on another moment thing about my spaceship nerdery thing i mean i've even uh, applied that to the fact of like you know uh the millennium falcon and the enterprise are probably the two most iconic ships in all of like space fantasy slash science fiction and i i've even said it on my facebook page that um the millennium falcon is taking you know like like um cosmic space travel shape the saucer just like the Enterprise has the saucer. Um, the Millennium Falcon has gun turrets and a greenhouse window like a flying fortress from World War II. Um, the Enterprise is, is painted battleship gray with registry numbers on it like a Navy battleship. And I think that even fans don't even realize that that's why the, even those designs with science fiction, um, you know, like in the Enterprise's case, it's the saucer and the cylinders. You're like a plane, you know, space rocket has the cylinder, but we've also taken like, to me, our subconscious view of what's, what's, space travel is. And I feel like that's a perfect example in kind of the aesthetic of Star Wars uh, or taking fairly geometric shapes. That's the Star Wars philosophy. The Enterprise always has like a primary housing with uh, nacelle struts and engine pods, you know, um, like a lot of things in our own culture that that we don't realize are kind of there because if you do something so completely 
kind of strange and avant-garde and groundbreaking. I feel like you have the potential to really turn the audience off because you're going, whoa, 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 I don't know what this is too weird for me. No, thank you. And uh, and so even with my own stuff, I'm like, even actually, even with the Black Alpha cell suits, I never really say that it's a straight on superhero story. Like I probably mentioned previously, it's got it's got some of the tropes and the flourishes in there. But like the cell suits, the uh, cell suit helmet, the visor could constitute as the mask iconography of a superhero costume. And then they've got a symbol in their chest area, which is like the iconic the Batman Superman crest and uh, the three primary colors of a superhero costume. You know what I mean? All of that is kind of a subconscious way to say this is the closest these guys get to having a superhero suit even though technically that's not really what it is, you know? Um, it kind of makes me think more of like almost like the Halo, the Halo Spartan armor. It's kind of the idea of having, uh, you know, like, because actually now that I think about it too, even uh, Master Chief, like the first, because I forgot how many like renditions of the uh, Spartan armor there were, but he's like one of the first ones, or it's either the first one or the second one. And they have to be, they're like, when they're born, they're taken and immediately they have to start training because their bodies have to endure uh, a lot of damage from these suits still. And once they are built up to be strong enough with these suits, as humans, even without the suits, they are beasts, right? Mm-hmm. The suits just make them incredibly strong. And that's kind of the idea is like, you know, having that. <laughs> oh, what's that? Splag Alpha. Oh, what if, what if you took the Batman story, sprinkled in some Iron Man tech, and dropped it off in the middle of Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, so like, it's definitely, um, you know, that whole thing, like, you can't really tell a new story. You can just make it look new. And, like, it's cool, like, having all these different renditions from, like, the, the fact that people can mistakenly go, oh, it kind of reminds me of this. Oh, and it also kind of reminds Oh, and it also, and that's the uh, Pablo Picasso, uh, good artist copy, great artist steal. But if you steal from one artist, you're a, you're a thief. If you steal from 100, you're a genius, right? And that's kind of the idea. Well, exactly. And I, you know, like I said, I pretty much devour anything that I can get on people I've admired through my life. Like I want to know their story, how they got to where they're at, how they came up with the things that we all love. And, you know, I know like in uh, both Gene Roddenberry and George Lucas's, as an example, I mean, you know, their influences are there. In fact, one of the things that we were talking about earlier about you saying that somebody compared, uh, Greg, your story to The Mandalorian, you know, to me, The Mandalorian has taken that space Western thing that Lucas was going for to the nth degree. And so I've said this in the past too, like Gene Roddenberry pitched Star Star Trek as Wagon Train to the Stars. So I said, a lot of sci-fi love has a space Western. And so I said, Star Wars is a space Western with uh, World War II elements and samurais. Star Trek is a space Western with, you know, uh, the adventures of someone on the, uh, a vessel from the Imperial Navy. Um, And Black Alpha is a space Western following the superhero myth. Um, you know, it's the same kind of things that, that those guys, I know, like, if you look at Star Wars, you could break it down. I mean, Lucas, you know, did his creative stew of like Casablanca and, uh, you know, World War II films and samurai epics, you know, um, uh, Prince, uh, King Arthur, excuse me, you know, uh, King Arthur, even a little bit of Wizard of Oz, you can see all that. Star Trek had like, you know, Forbidden Planet, which was one of the premier science fiction films from the fifties. But then he also had a huge love for, um, uh, Captain Horatio Hornblower, those were his favorite novels, he said most of his life about, you know, a captain during the days of the British Empire that was kind of left, you know, he was his own diplomat and these missions to kind of represent the empire. That's Captain Kirk and the ship being out in the frontiers of space. But also, and I've even said this, even if you look at kind of the Star Trek iconography and the Westerns being so popular, Kirk is the sheriff, Spock is the deputy, Chekhov and Sula are the ranch hands, uh, Scotty's the blacksmith, and and you've got somebody working doing telegraphing, which would be a horror, you know, the ranch is the ship. It's the familiar setting. And so, 
like anything that I've read through the years, I, I really try to devour and process that stuff and, and hopefully apply it to what I do now currently, you know, in my later years as a creator to say, um, this is what I'm trying to mix up in my own creative stew of what I'm creating. You know, I have another character, Damien Moon, that I pitch as, uh, you know, he's the last descendant of Merlin who set up shop in the in, in the modern age as an independent contractor of espionage. So he's basically Doctor Strange meets James Bond. You know, all of my pitches always have that, well, it's this meets this, this meets this kind of stuff. And uh, that's another example of like the elevator pitch where hopefully somebody gets the gist of what you're trying to do. Like you said, if it's a single, <laughs> if it's a single inspiration, yeah, you're, you're very much closing in on theft of IP. But I think when you mix in your influences, you know, and even, even within black alpha, the fact that, uh, you know, these cell suit pilots, the guardsmen have to do all this rigorous training. There's some, there's some Bruce Lee in there. I grew up as a huge Bruce Lee fan and what he was able to do with, with his, just everything about his persona. So I'm like, so there's some of that in there and they, the guardsmen sort of have to do their own training combat tactics that are their own version of like space foo, basically a bit of a martial arts thing in there. Like I said, like the Shaolin monks, uh, the Shaolin priests. And so, um, you know, when I look at all this stuff and then I kind of step back from it and it's hard for any of us that create things, right? Like you kind of exist in a creative bubble. Sometimes it's hard to really separate yourself from it. Like an audience member that's never seen it before and uh, truly try and assess it. And it's really difficult to do, but at times I have gone, well, I hope I've created something fun. You know what I mean? I hope I've created something cool. Like I said, that I would enjoy. Hopefully other people that are into those things will enjoy just as much, you know. Um, before I forget, though, I did want to mention, too, we talked about Salem Tusk earlier. Um, you know, Bishop Stevens, like I said, we connected on Facebook a few years ago. He was interested in playing the character as a starring vehicle for himself. And a lot of times when he's been in, a, you know, he's a big guy. He's a former wrestler. So and he's he's my African-American Indiana Jones um, that's set in the, the Victorian steampunk setting, you know, uh, our hope is to sort of create um, a steampunk story that, you know, because I mean, the, here's the interesting thing about steampunk that I've noticed over the years. It's never had its own Star Wars. It's never, you know what I mean? It's never had like its own Marvel superhero type of IP that represents it. And then I learned kind of the hard way a few years ago that honestly, because that they, they've had their own kind of like subculture that shows up at cons dressed in costumes of their making, you know, exactly what they're from. There's not one individual. Oh, well, this is this famous steampunk hero character that I had to move away from that. But I still want to kind of, I guess, uh, honor the potential of what that world can be. You know, I, I saw the latest Kingsman movie that was set during World War One. that kind of, you know, that to me was kind of an example of what a big budget fun steampunky movie could be. And so our challenge is we don't want to make it full blown steampunk. You know, I've been kind of calling it a fantasy with another Western you know, motif that, uh, you know, that, that, like I said, it's going to be low budget, but we want it to be a lot of fun and it's going to have the things that I've loved of pulp heroes growing up. Like, you know, Indiana Jones is basically a pulp hero. It wasn't introduced in books, but like the Rocketeer, the shadow, the phantom, uh, doc Savage, all these famous early, you know, I, I've always wanted to do that kind of a character. So it's just by coincidence that, uh, my first two characters out of the gate <laughs> was something inspired by star Wars partially, and the second character was inspired by Indiana Jones, which, you know, came came out not too far apart from each other. But, you know, that's just kind of the way they both have landed. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what we do. And if anyone ever gets a chance, you can usually check out the Salem Tusk trailers on YouTube. Um, and uh, we have like kind of a general trailer and another one's an actual scene or what a scene would feel like. And I have a villain in there um, who's kind of our Darth Vader. You know, I mean, I created... I love, by the way, that's one of my favorite things to do. I love designing villains for my stories. I 
probably enjoy designing them even more so than the heroes. I think it's um, fun to write the villains a little more. So. Well, to me, they're a more challenging kind of viewpoint in, in trying to get a voice for your story, right? I mean, because you kind of, in a way, sort of have to, unless you wanted them to be a one-dimensional mustache twirling old. Yeah, story. I was gonna say you can't make them super evil. They have you have to like almost understand them, but then go, but like it's still wrong, right? That's kind of the whole idea. Like that's why like Sandman is like a really cool character. Like he's just trying to help his daughter or like uh, Mr. Freeze is just trying to help his wife, right? Like it all starts off where like, it, like you understand the beginning, but then they go dark. And like, you know, that's why they're, you know, cool characters. Well, and they always say it's only one, like if you look at the, the uh, origin of a, a villain character, they're, they're on a very similar path to the hero. They both start out with some kind of tragedy generally. And the one just goes the opposite direction, the other side of the coin. But it's interesting, like just took one little thing, maybe one little, as, as a two-face in in the dark night just i was gonna say a little push he was right. like one of the best examples of like that character that could have gone either way and like so he's like he was like a really i always wonder if that's how they came up with the idea is that literally you know the hero villain story is the same and then it's like 50 50 split and then literally two-face is that like almost iconically he's the allegory for that i think yeah. because if you look at like the way they portrayed harvey dent i mean he's kind of uh, at least in some iterations he's kind of handsome and posh like Bruce Wayne. And then the tragedy, like you said, it literally separated him down the middle. And then yeah. the conf the conflict that goes with that. But I mean, even like, uh, did either one of you guys see Shang-Chi? Yep. Legend I have not like, seen it yet. <laughs> well, I will say this, that the villain character in that story, I think they did a great job of kind of almost making him sympathetic. And I heard that's what they thought of, you know, Killmonger in the Black Panther movie. And, you know, I think that even the Joker, the different iterations of the Joker, all have a bit of an element of the tragic backstory that character is. So I think it is important to make your villains not so completely robotic and remote, you know, from, yeah. from, from the yeah. human frailties that, you know, otherwise they are going to just be boring characters that are easily dispatchable. So, yeah, we yeah. did that in our uh, flagship title of Seer Chronicles, actually. The first issue after we remastered it, um, the story was kind of already there, but when we remastered it, we had like 20 more pages of story. <laughs> and, uh, it's it's better now um and it shows the one side which is you uh the artist that was actually working on it didn't know who was actually the good guy until yeah the end but <laughs> it starts off with like this heroic firefighter and it's like oh okay you don't know if he'll stay as the hero because he dies and spoiler and then <laughs> there's this other guy that's like going through all this like he has to he's got like so much debt from like his son's like medical issues and then something happens there and he thinks this one thing can change everything and he can keep his family and all that stuff and <laughs> that doesn't happen then, say, even our second issue like our second yeah. issue the, the care one of the characters who was um supposed to be a villain who was going to uh basically get these powers turn evil and then die pretty quickly um i was basically like that, that was something where like uh because like so greg writes these stories and then i go through and edit them and every once in a while i'll just ask him like but like why do i care about this character if he's if he dies so quickly so we started like developing more about him and now he's like one of our favorite characters in the sense that like, we really built out his backstory and like the whole second issue is kind of like following this character who is supposed to be almost a one and done quick character and now he's going to become a prominent part of this universe and it's it, it, and he's and he's a potential villain that's supposed to be, you know, uh, a, a sad backstory. 
Yeah, all that always sounds in, you know very compelling to me as a storyteller or person who loves storytelling in general. So yeah, it's cool to hear you guys are doing that and you know being mindful, uh, I guess, of those storytelling principles. Um, when I when I brought up by the way about the easy to disposable bad guy that the uh, one of the people one of the things people have asked with the Salem Test movie, the plan is like I said, it starts filming in the fall, September 2022, about me having my own Stan Lee style cameo in the movie. That's awesome. And so I made a joke. I said, well, he can just easily, I'll be an easily disposable bad guy. <laughs> that just shows up with about five <laughs> other dudes and I get clocked in the jaw and I get thrown off the screen in about two seconds. Or the other one is, you know, maybe him and I are walking down the street and we bump into each other, you know, and then we, yeah. like, do I know you, you know, but yeah. So I don't mind being an easily disposable bad guy is like a throwaway cameo. So that's the one I, exception I made. I think my, I think my favorite uh, Stan Lee p- appearance is the one where he tries to get into like a fancy gala area. And he's like, no, my name should be on that list. Like, yep. <laughs> like, like it, it is cool. Almost like belittling yourself as the creator in the, in the world just for the appearance. And then you're and you're gone. It's kind of, it's kind of funny. Yeah. I think you got to have a good sense of humor about it. Otherwise it comes across as I, I think a little kind of, self-inflating ego if you're like you got to make yourself the focus instead of kind of being yeah. able to laugh at yourself so <laughs> yeah that's very cool anyway nice. i'm looking at the time i probably on my schedule i probably should wrap this up pretty quick um, <laughs> you got, do you guys have any other questions or anything i guess I, thinking I, of it? yeah i guess i guess uh one last thing i wanted to ask or uh touch on was um so the the cool thing because I, I I always like like while the podcast is going on trying to think about like what the what the title of it will be and I notice like the two biggest things that um, you know I, I hear from you is the fact that first off you you dream really big about things and I feel like some creators they kind of have an idea but they don't really know where to go with it and like you clearly like figured out like I love this world building I wanted TV shows I picture doing interviews one day and like that's really important but the other side of that is. Um, the idea, like no matter how much you work on yourself, you are going to need other people to succeed. And the fact that you started doing this powerful network, that's kind of what I wanted to touch on. First off, like what, what inspired you to start reaching out and finding people? And then the other part would be what's been some of like the most helpful, like networking that you've done, like, like finding a Facebook group or going to some event, like, you know, something like that. So I guess those would be my questions. I guess, you know, as far as a uh, part of the networking question is I, I joined groups that I figured would be along the same lines of subject. You know what I mean? Meaning like um, if I want to work in the independent film space, I joined independent film groups um, and also with the creators too, like in, you know, ICC independent creator connection, I um, joined a lot of these groups and shared things on there. And I feel like uh the, the interesting thing is, and this has been my approach, and I've kind of had to sort of tell people uh, a few social faux pas. If you're trying to network, obviously, this is supposed to be kind of a networking 101. When you reach out and want to connect someone on Facebook, you don't automatically say, hey, how's it, hey, how's it going? What's up? Like my Kickstarter. Like my page. Uh, usually what I do when I network with people is I end up introducing myself and just saying, nice to meet you. And I don't, I don't engage them in a long-winded conversation at all. Sometimes it's just that. And they're like, oh, hey, nice to meet you too. And then I sort of let them, if they're interested, follow what I'm doing on my page. And I just, I don't get real pushy about it. And so, like, like I said, you know, every opportunity that I've had, like even one of the times that Black Alpha was optioned, uh, a composer was working with a filmmaker. He liked it, introduced me to the filmmaker. They optioned it. Another time, the guy that was in charge of acquiring content for, uh, said to me, hey, what is this? Is it already is it already spoken for? 
And all of that is because I, I didn't push anything in anybody's face. I just put it on my page and I just let, you know, people let it unspool naturally. And that's actually what benefited me. Like the Salem Plus thing is because I belong to this group that I was invited to. That's this uh, group run by this guy named James, um, Neil James, James Neil Brodus. And he, he uh, interacts with people in the entertainment industry and he saw a drawing I did of Salem Tusk, an older one, and initially, or immediately thought of Bishop Stevens, had us connect that day. And so that's what I've noticed is that if you're not pushy about what you're doing, let people decide if they want to be interested. I'm talking about it, whether or not they want to buy the comic, if they want to order merchandise, if somebody wants to maybe turn it into something. Like and the one thing I was going to mention, by the way, I'm envious of writers because I'm not a writer. I'm the world builder guy. I design, you know, I come up with the stories, kind of an idea of tone, design visually what it looks like. But I don't have that gift to, to give my characters these amazing voices. And, you know, so I, I get I've worked with screenwriters through the years that have done two pilots for Black Alpha, a feature film script. Same thing with Salem Tusk and doing treatments of my other characters. And that for me is fun because I sort of get to uh, view it as an audience member because they sort of take my initial template. But then they really give it kind of its character and voice and rhythm, et cetera. And so the same thing, I've had writers come to me and check out or and they're like, oh, I've been following what you've been doing. Even with uh, partnering with the guys at WTF Comics, they were following what I was doing for a while and then finally reached out to me and said, hey, uh, here's what we're thinking. What do you think of this? And so I'd have to say, you know, um, with the exception of when Black Alpha was originally published in USA Today several years ago, that was someone that I met at a San Diego Comic-Con who ended up finding that opportunity years later. We hadn't spoken in years. He had his assistant reach out to me saying, hey, we're going to be doing a new line of comics, independent comics that are going to be in USA Today. Would you like to be a part of that? You know, and, and we've been watching what you're doing. This seems really cool. So that that to me is probably the biggest thing is to tell people, you know, because even me, I, I'm pretty, uh, pretty down to earth and I generally try to be as polite as I can be. But I, I tell people, yeah, come on, you know, when you message me and you want me to like your page, I'm like, let's get to know each other a little bit first. You know what I mean? That's that's probably the biggest advice that I think anyone should take away from networking more than anything. Cause you don't, if you're overly pushy, then, you know, you've closed potential doors there for opportunity. Yeah. I think one thing I've always told my um, like creators we talk with, it's like when you're trying to reach out and connect with people, like just think about being that person. Like, don't you think it's annoying when some person DM or like puts a comment on your Instagram post? It's like, yo, DM me, right? Like, no, like if you want to talk to me, you can send me a DM or not. Like, you know, I'm not going to just reach out to you. I don't know who you are, right? I'm doing stuff. I'm busy. And so like definitely reaching out with a consideration, like they're a person too. They're not just your, you know, key to a golden city. Like you need to actually, like if you're not friends with them, they're not going to be a good connection anyways. So you want to like befriend people. You want to like provide value to them. Like you don't want to just spam them with nonsense. Like you want to actually connect with them, share your thoughts on their stuff, maybe like their stuff, engage with their stuff. Because if, you know, that's the whole point. If you become friends and connect with someone, it's because you mutually share an interest in something, not just your own stuff. Yeah. And the other thing too, that just reminded me also, and I, I usually like, I'm pretty, I try and be as cordial as I can, but sometimes I've also a deleted posts where somebody who never inter interacts with me <clears throat> takes something that I've done, like whether it's sharing a piece of art or whatever, and then their comment is to share their stuff. And a lot of times I'll delete that because I'm like, we don't, I don't, we don't even know each other. And so you're just trying, obviously you're just trying to piggyback. You know what I mean? I don't have like a huge following on Facebook, but I mean, I'm always maxed out at the 5,000 limit and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, so I know some people see what I'm doing and it's nowhere near the level of certain people out there that are obviously industry legends. But I think even with my kind of small corner of a following on social media, they sort of figure, well, I'm going to 
take advantage of this. And I figure if people see what I'm doing, and unfortunately, sometimes the work isn't isn't quite polished either. So I'm like, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because you're going to put your thing out there that, you know, it, it needs some work. And I, I think that trying to compare it to what I'm doing, you know, to me, sort of you're shooting yourself in the foot as far as that goes, in my opinion. So anyway, does that clearly answer, I guess, the question? Yeah, no, that was definitely, yeah, was definitely very cool because I just wanted to bring that up because I know that there's a lot of independent creators that they're trying to make this cool world. They're doing a lot of the stuff you're talking about. They might even be dreaming big and have the, all these ambitions, but then they just post on their their Facebook or Instagram. And that's all, that's where they end. They don't reach out to new people. They don't join Facebook groups and without like, you know, there's others that join Facebook groups and they're like, buy my comic, buy my comic. And then you get banned. Like nobody wants that. Like you have to be a part of that community. And so, yeah, it's, it, that's definitely something I think a lot of creators need to hear. And uh, you know, yeah, it definitely answers that. One, one other thing too, real quick, while I'm thinking about it, when you asked about like, you know, the networking aspect, uh, since I'm a spaceship model lover, I've joined a number of these spaceship model groups. And um, that's actually how I met the guys that are doing the model of the ship. That's right awesome. Making it. But I, I have to do kind of a shout out because this to me is is the total fanboy in me coming out. So um, through a number of years now, I've become friends with Chris Hunter, who is the son of Jeffrey Hunter, who played Captain Pike in the original Star Trek pilot. And so he's been for months and months and months saying, I cannot wait until your ship model comes out. I'm going to buy it. And so that for me means something to the five-year-old in me that here's the son of the actor who played the captain before Shatner actually wanting a model of my ship from That's a story. Awesome. You know, like I said, that kind of makes him Star Trek. And as he said, he's the first Trekkie or Trekker. So that that's also been super cool. That's how him and I met was through some of these spaceship modeling groups and stuff. So yeah, I always tell people that's why I, I do my best. Everyone can run their page the way they see fit. I've never allowed politics theological stuff, um, you know, on my page. I don't want people arguing that I've never met on my wall. I mean, there's been two times I've regretted that one time. <laughs> this is still makes me laugh because it was two hours of my life wasted. I was just trying to, I was just trying to get um, interest in when Batman versus Superman was getting ready to come out. And I just said, I want to know why is it people think Batman can wipe the floor with Superman? I said, I'm not talking the one from the dark Knight that was charged up with a battery to the city and he had green arrow with kryptonite laced arrows. I said, I'm talking, traditional Batman uh, detective that has gadgets. How's that guy going to defeat someone who can lift up an ocean liner? It makes no sense to me. I said, unless he cheats. So right away, <laughs> I had all these people on that post arguing with me about how Batman could defeat Superman. And I said, no, you're, you're missing the point of the post. Using a ring, a kryptonite ring, that, that's cheating. Anything that involves kryptonite, that's cheating, okay? A, a bad guy can do that. That doesn't make him more of a badass than Superman. So, I, so I've had that going on, and that was two hours wasted because everyone just wanted to argue about it. <laughs> so I just thought, I'm like, well, I'm not doing that again. And then I, I know another time I've shared something about enterprise designs from the different iterations, and that really gets people going. So I'm like, yep, not doing that anymore either. So I don't want any arguing on my page. I learned both. Oh, and here's the, the third one I do have to mention. Okay, so I was I was there when the original Star Wars came out. I was I was 11. I was so there. That was, that was a magic year for me. And I'm of a believer that Darth Vader in that original film and, and Luke's father were two separate individuals. I think George Lucas got interested in the making of Empire. Some of this has been confirmed with supposed to, you know, that, that he decided it would be more compelling to make Vader Luke's father. You know, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen Empire, spoilers. Hmm. Um, I I have been a very big, uh, I guess, proponent of defending that, that I kind of wish, I mean, it's Lucas's story, he can do it, but I almost wish I could have seen 
that story that I think he started out with. And so I'll always end up bringing examples of like, you know, if this was all preordained, then what, what, what would have happened if the red droid hadn't broken down and Luke would have never gotten R2 wouldn't have gotten a message from the princess. You can't tell me that this was all by design. You know, I said, I feel like the story that Lucas wanted to tell. And I said, and in my own mind, I always felt like Vader was a young, young Jedi Knight who maybe fell in love with Luke's mother was extremely envious of, of her, you know, and also maybe his dear friend, Anakin, you know, what he was as a Jedi Knight. And maybe that classic, like, you know, uh, Obi-Wan being their mentor, both of them, you know, one, you know what I mean? Uh, it's kind of like the story of what's his name in Dr. Strange, uh, not Baron Mordo. Is it Baron Mordo? It's, it's the one that was supposed to be, he thought he was going to be the next chosen one. And he ends up turning against Strange because he didn't get, you know, chosen after putting in all this work. And that's the version of Star Wars I wish I could have seen with any future iterations. But if I bring that up on Facebook, people are going to argue to death with me about that. You know, and I'm like, hey, I was there. I was there at the beginning. I read all these articles. And so you can't believe everything Lucas says that it was always intended to be the tragedy of Darth Vader. I said, I remember reading articles as a kid that there were going to be 12 films and the only ones that were going to star the droids. I said, so he changed his mind a lot midstream. So that's another example of things I won't do. I won't argue about that because you know, they're passionate about Star Wars too. And then they want to tell me that I'm wrong with my theory. And I'm like, okay, so I'm done with that. So that was the third example. <laughs> I won't ever do any of that stuff ever again. No. It, it's yeah. funny reference. So that's wow. cool. I, I was, it was one of the things you just on that last one. Thank you, Greg. But uh, that, that reminded me of, um, I, I know I brought it up earlier, Dragon Ball Z, but the, the original story, um, like Goku's the main character, his son surpasses him and his son is supposed to become the main character. And like, uh, uh, Kira Toriyama like has said that before, but basically what happened where the fans fell in love with Goku so much they didn't like the whining Gohan that they brought him back from the dead and you know just to make him stay the main character. And it's funny because like what would that path have been? Like how strong would Gohan have gotten? What would have happened? Who would he have fought? Because like literally even in the final um, uh, saga of Dragon Ball Z, there's this ultimate power of the universe and Gohan the son becomes the strongest individual Saiyan of all these, of all these Saiyans. And he's, and he's winning, like he's beating this guy and then everything changes. And then basically Goku has to fight him at the end and beat him. And it's like this, it's so interesting. Like what would that story have been? Um, yeah. You might never know without the original creator making that story. Like, I just thought that was interesting. But yeah. Greg, what, what were you thinking? Uh, I was just going to say, if people didn't want to argue about what you were talking about, but if you want to engage in the comment section on YouTube, go ahead for this episode. Because yeah. I'm sure there are people, there are people that want to fight about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's cool. I'll probably just sort of watch as a spectator. Uh, I do find definitely some humor in it. Um, it's like, what, one thing about you bringing up, uh, uh, what what is it? Grogu? Dragon Ball Z, Goku, yeah. Because I was want to say Grogu, isn't that Baby Yoda? Goku, name? yeah, yeah, yeah. Gro, Gro, I forgot Grogu, Baby Yoda's name. Goku, something yeah. like that. Um, yeah, when you were talking about that, I, I just realized something. This is a total random side note. Uh, and then when you also talked about Halo and the Spartans, um, trying to come up with a name for your order. I mean, like you know what I mean. That was something I wrestled with for a long time. Uh, you know, Spartans being one of them, and of course. Lucas, to me, did a really great job because he introduced something in the vernacular, a knight, you know, the way, like a traditional Yeah, Jedi knight, knight, yeah. But Jedi kind of playing off of an Asian, I think, word or term um, that I sort of just relented. That's why I'm like, you know, I try to come up with all these names. I mean, a lot of people now say paladins, rangers. And so I'm like, you know, the National Guardsman, there was a Guardsman character in Iron Man. 
these guys are just going to be called the guardsmen. I can't be that clever and come up with something that's sort of just in, in, you know, indicative of that world. And I also feel like too, when it comes to world building, if you end up introducing a lot of um, kind of alien terms to the audience, it's harder for them to remember, you know, like, yeah. like I know in John Carter, I think that the, uh, the monarch figures were called Jeddix or something like that, instead of like, Oh, this is a King or a Lord or a governor or Baron or whatever. And uh, that's one thing I learned early on too. Like, obviously Lucas kind of had a handle on that, you know, but there's, you know, there's the Knights, the Jedi Knights, there's a the princess in the story. Um, well, even, even the Sith Lords, like they were like, he had his unique name, but then they, uh, coincidentally, that familiarity novelty thing again, like unique name Sith, familiar name Lord, unique name Jedi, familiar name Knights. And so it is something uh, interesting because like he kind of would say the Jedi Knights and then eventually it's just the Jedi, the Sith Lords and then eventually just the Sith. And so he kind of like introduced them slowly until now. It's so common that when you want to tell a new story, you can even say it's kind of like the Sith and Jedi as opposed to the Lords and Knights. Exactly. You know, that's the, that's the key. Like, like you said, getting the audience comfortable enough that that does become part of their vernacular and pop culture. Um, one other, one final thing before I sign off here, when we're talking about world building <laughs> um, that I've also been mindful of. So slogans, having a slogan for your world is important because then that can be put on a t-shirt. It's kind of a walking um, billboard for your world. Like, you know, obviously Star Trek is live long and prosper. May the force be with you. The Mandalorian, uh, this is the way uh, hunger games, let the odds, you know, so, in Black Alpha, there's there's a phrase that they have, which sounds pseudo-religious a little bit. It's your will guides me. And that's actually supposed to be a term that uh, a subordinate uses of someone who's higher up with them. So it doesn't matter if you're a bad guy or a good guy. That's a general term is your will guides me. And a kind of almost like yes, sir, or by your command from Battlestar Galactica with the Cylons. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so that's fun. So I'm hoping that, you know, that's said enough in the story. There's two sayings. That's one of them. And then anyone who's had any dealings with the pirate culture of my world says, what in the nine moons? So there's some characters that are going to say, instead of saying, what the hell or whatever, what the heck? And that's that little subtlety about world building that, that your characters have a phrase or two that they're very familiar with, that the general audience will become familiar with, you know, the more that it's repeated and everything. So that's what I was going, you know, we need to find our own live long and prosper or may the force be with you, you know? And, yeah. and obviously the may the force be with you, me growing up Catholic, that sounds like may the Lord be and with also, you. Yeah, and also with you. And yeah. also with you. And may the force be with you and also with you. I mean, when I've been in mass, I've wanted to say that back to you. May the force be with you to them. Um, but uh, but I was going to say that that's that your will guides me still sounds sort of pseudo religious to me a little bit. You know, that could be like whatever you consider your will, like the will of the higher power, the Lord or whatever the case is, you know. So those are also fun little components. Like I said, trying to find a slogan and phrases that, you know, even a RoboCop, the one that always sticks out, you've seen RoboCop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll buy that for a dollar. I mean, that's one of the big <laughs> ones that I walked away from that, you know, I can say that as a joke now, or obviously galaxy quest made fun of it by Graptar's hammer. You know, <laughs> yeah, Graptar's. That, that, that to me is like, that's their, like nailing, galaxy quest, nailing yeah. that. Yeah. Nailing that live long and prosper that probably, some actor would hate saying to the fans over and over again. So yep. anyway, with all that being said, this has been a wonderful conversation. I look forward to coming again on your show or, you know, coming on your show again uh, sometime, you know, whenever the definitely. So uh, the, where, where can people find you? Where do you want to direct them? Okay. Um, I generally do 98% of my promotion on Facebook. It's under Tom Rash, R-A-S-C-H. Um, it's usually a picture of my daughter, Ari and me. She's three. That's usually my, my profile pic. And then my cover photo is, says a uh, Marvel artist and content creator. I look like a, a metal head, a metal hair metal dude. Um, 
with pictures of my seven characters generally. So that's how people can find me. Um, there is a Black Alpha Twitter page. Uh, there's a Black Alpha Instagram, Black Alpha Facebook page. Um, I'm not as, and by the way, I usually, someone else, uh, Jack from WTF runs those pages for me. I'm pretty much the only one I generally have time for is to run my Facebook page. And I always tell people to either follow what I'm doing there. Always feel free to friend request me because I like meeting people and I like meeting and hearing about what other people have going on. And it's probably the most direct conduit that I have to share what's going on, especially with my projects. That's like, that's when I've announced like when Black Alpha has been optioned through the years or the Salem test movie. I've been, you know, sharing posts about that lately. Um, you know, those kinds of things. And it's the best way to kind of get, I think, uh, just sort of a connection and interaction with, with your audience. And also I feel like it's a good, a bit of a litmus test. It kind of gives you an idea of what's working and not working too. So I mainly, I share, like I said, my projects about 70% of the time. And then I share some of my old artwork from Marvel or the, the new artwork that I've been doing, or some of the designs I've done for films and video games. So, but yeah, those are the, that's the basic place to find me. And it would be Facebook. Um, awesome. So, yeah. Well, cool. It's been great having you. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, guys. Yeah, no problem. All right. So this was episode 98.